Daniel chapter 9, starting from verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian king, kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our king, our princes and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, we and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave to us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servants of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our Lord, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Continuing at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insights and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, 
to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. A war will continue until the end. And desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Well, Daniel 9 is one of the most exciting chapters in the Bible. Let me start positive, because there's all sorts of tricky things that we're going to get into over the course of the next two weeks. But this is one of the most exciting chapters in the whole Bible. And I know it's tricky. I know that for, for many of you, perhaps you've got this itch to know what we're going to be saying when we get to the vision, and you're so excited about what's going on in verses 24 to 27 that perhaps instinctively you might skip over the prayer. And when you get to the vision, there's so many things that it's not easy to be absolutely clear about that you can lose sight of the big picture. So what we're going to do this evening, Lord willing, which is why I asked Ian and Megan to kindly read the whole chapter, is, is to put the whole bird's eye view in place. Because the beginning and the second half all dovetail together. And you can't understand one without the other. So I want to give you four hooks. I'm going to nail those hooks in place so that you can see all of the elements to this chapter. And then, Lord willing, we'll go back, we'll work through the first half this evening, and we'll come back next week to work through verses 20 to 27. You might say, well, that's very clever delaying tactics. Let me tell you, a week would not be long enough <laughs> to answer all the questions in my own mind, let alone all the questions that you may have. So pray for me, as I know you pray for me and Matthew week by week, uh, for further understanding this coming week. But this week, we're focusing on the big picture and then verses 1 to 19. So hook number one is the first two verses, and Daniel makes a great discovery. Let's try and put ourselves in the map. It is about 539 BC, and Daniel is now probably in his early 80s. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but Lord willing, there is somebody in your life that comes to mind in their early 80s. That's Daniel. He's been in exile for the vast majority of his life, nearly 70 years. And for all of those years, he has longed for God's people to be back in God's place. Now, in his quiet time, he's reading from Jeremiah. And as he does, he realizes that the end of the exile is near. Like, really near. 
the Jews would soon be going home. They would rebuild the city and the temple. And, and what we might think is the kind of news that would make a man like Daniel jump up and start dancing around doesn't have the effect that we would expect. He's driven to prayer. And not just prayer, he's driven to sackcloth and ashes and fasting and pleading with God. Why? Why such a, what we might describe as a mournful, as a, as, a, as a penitent, as a, I've got nothing, all I can do is pray response when there's all of this excitement about eventually getting out of exile? Well, it's because the prophecies that God made through Jeremiah anticipated a day when God's people would have turned and repented. And Daniel knows that God's people are not there, not in their heart. It's what drives this great man to prayer. And verses 3 to 19 record a truly great prayer. But how can God save a nation whose people aren't repentant? That's the conundrum that Daniel is wrestling with in light of what's being said in Jeremiah. And Daniel does two things. He prays with heartfelt, compassion, uh, heartfelt confession and he pleads the character of God. So what we're going to see in this great prayer, the, the Jews themselves can't be the basis for anything because they've not even turned and repented. So Daniel doesn't plead on behalf of the Jews and their character. He pleads on behalf of the character of God. And he prays that God would act in such a way that God would bring glory to himself. So there's Daniel. He's in the middle of prayer. And in verse 20 to 23, his prayer is interrupted with a great assurance. There's Daniel. He's nearly in his, in his early 80s. And Gabriel appears and says, Daniel, the minute you started praying, the word went out. Why? Because you are highly esteemed. If you've got another translation in your lap this evening, it may say, because you are greatly loved. Isn't that incredible? We're going to think next week about what kind of joy and encouragement that would have brought to Daniel after all of those years of service to hear that Gabriel comes from the throne room of God to bring a message from the God of the heavens to say, you are greatly loved. And after that, comes a great revelation. And there is all sorts of tricky complexity. And I will do my best to serve you to understand that as well as we can next week. But actually, the big idea is really clear. And that's why it's so important for us to just try to put our arms around the whole chapter before we see it in two halves. Here's Daniel. He's repentant and prayerful, but he's excited about the fact that the exile is soon to end. All those years when the sacrifices couldn't have been made, there will be a time when they can again. The city of God will be rebuilt. That The temple will start functioning again. And all of that is the great hope for God's people. But in time, the rebuilt city, the rebuilt sanctuary would be destroyed again. And what God is doing is he is showing Daniel that his ultimate hope and confidence can't be in a physical temple, in a physical place. It has to be to something 
greater. And when we get into verses 24 to 27, the heartbeat of that prophecy is a window into God's great plan of redemption that doesn't stop with the end of the exile and the people going back to the city and starting in the temple again. That's the big, big picture. So before we get into all the details, have you got those four hooks in place? You're getting to the end of the exile. And knowing that that's about to happen, Daniel starts pleading with God in prayer. Why does he plead? He pleads so that God would change the heart of the nation and act towards them in great grace, even though they don't deserve it. He's received this wonderful message of assurance and then given a vision to say, in all of your excitement about the end of the exile, don't put your ultimate hope and confidence there. There is something greater. There is something to which the temple is pointing. The city is pointing. That is your great hope and confidence. So that's where we're going. Now, we're going to work through some detail now, and we're going to go back to verses 1 and 2 to see Daniel make this great discovery. Uh, Daniel tells us that it is the first year of Darius's reign. Why does that matter? For nearly 70 years, they've been under Babylonian rule, and now that Babylonian empire is done. There is a new king in place. He is the Medo-Persian king. And maybe Daniel's even beginning to think with a change in leader, maybe this is the beginning of the end. And then in his quiet time, he turns to Jeremiah. And I love, I love the simplicity of all of this. That, that wonderful assurance comes for Daniel simply by reading God's word. But this great prophet who was the one who was turned to by all of these great leaders in the Babylonian Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel was the one that God gave all this insight to. But where does Daniel get his comfort, his knowledge, his assurance from? It's reading God's word. And he reads from Jeremiah. Now, if you turn to Jeremiah 25, his prophecies of God were given through Jeremiah at the time when God's people were still in Israel. But God's people were not living according to God's ways. They had disobeyed his commandments. Not only they disobeyed his commandments, that God had graciously sent prophets. People who would come and say, have you forgotten God's word? And for 23 years, they'd ignored Jeremiah. Years later, Daniel is reading Jeremiah, we don't, we're not told in the passage exactly which sections he's reading, but given what he came to understand, we can be sure what he must have read. Jeremiah 25, beginning at verse 8. Therefore the Lord Almighty says this to the Jews in Israel, because of their disobedience before the exile, because you've not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring against them, sorry, I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. That is exactly what happened. But for how long? For 70 years. And then you turn to Jeremiah 29. You pick up in verse 10. This is what the Lord says in a subsequent prophecy from Jeremiah. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, 
I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Can you imagine Daniel's joy as he read those words? He knows he's been there for nearly 70 years because he's been there for the whole period of time. He has just witnessed the downfall of the Babylonians because now Darius is in the top seat. He's seeing all of this happening and this true, this time of freedom is about to happen. You can imagine the kind of sense of joy that should have been filling his heart. I don't know whether any of you got to watch the Champions League semi-final on Wednesday. But for those of you who didn't, it doesn't really matter. Let me set the scene. It's the second leg. And Manchester City are playing Real Madrid. And Manchester City go in with a goal advantage after the first leg. They're playing the second game, and they manage to score another goal in the 73rd minute, which means they're two goals clear, and Real Madrid wouldn't have a shot on target for 89 minutes. If you don't really like football, there's only 90 in a regular game. Okay? So basically, the whole of the second leg, Real Madrid haven't even kicked the ball towards the goal. But then... One of the most astonishing comebacks in Champions League football. Madrid score in the 90th minute. They score in the 91st minute, pushing it into extra time. And then they score a penalty just a few minutes into extra time to win the whole match 6-5. It's like truth, genuinely astonishing. Okay? Now, I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that you're a Real Madrid fan. But a bit like Biff Tannen. Anybody remember Back to the Future? Nobody? A few people. Okay. A few, enough people know that Biff Tannen, Back to the Future, he's got this time-traveling machine, managed to get a sports almanac so he could go back and he could say with certainty which games are going to be won. Imagine you're Biff Tannen and you go back anywhere between 73rd and 89th minute in that second half. Everybody else is like, we're two goals behind, we're going to get knocked out. And you're like, we're going to win! We're going to score in the 90th and the 91st minute, and then we're going to win in extra time. You would be uncontrollably excited. And in a similar kind of way, that's the moment that Daniel's at. Because humanly speaking, nothing else has changed. The Medo-Persian Empire isn't about to say, well, off you go, you've kind of served your time. The Jews aren't beginning a kind of revolt and starting to stir the people. You haven't got this prospect of all of the peasants taking over and managing to get out. To the outsider, it looks like you're still defeated. But Daniel knows God has spoken. And everything's going to change. So what does he do? Verse 3. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. That is not the response we're expecting. Daniel's response is is broken, heartfelt prayer. It's not celebration. He's not jumping around and doing a jig for joy. He's broken. He's broken because although God has made this great promise through Jeremiah, 
that the exile would last 70 years and God would bring his people back. What did we read in Jeremiah 29, verse 12? Then you, speaking to the people of God, you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And Daniel knew the people weren't doing that. The people weren't broken. They weren't repentant of all the sin that had resulted in them being carried out of their own city, their temple destroyed and being in exile for all those years. And so this faithful man of God prays this great prayer of confession in verses 3 to 9. And woven throughout this prayer are two key themes. You've got Daniel's prayer at the beginning, at the end, all the way through that clings to the character of God. And you've got, at the same time, his confession of sin with the people, alongside the people. We're going to start with that second bit first. We're going to look at how he stands with and for his fellow Jews. If you look in the first six, seven verses or so, look at all the we's, all the first person plurals in this prayer. We have sinned, we have been wicked, we have turned, we have not listened, we are covered with shame, we have sinned against you, we have not obeyed, we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous. All of that is phenomenally humble of Daniel. He was not a sinless man. There are no sinless people apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But you think about what we've learned of Daniel's life over the course of the last few weeks and months. Daniel was so courageous in his faith that he would willingly stand up against all of the commands that were made against him to disobey God, even at the prospect of losing his life, and he remained faithful. But here he is, and he's not just identifying with his fellow Jews, he's sharing with their guilt. And with all of their disobedience, he's doing that because God's covenant wasn't made with Daniel personally. God had entered into a covenant with all of the people of God. And so Daniel is stepping up as a representative for all of those people pleading on their behalf with God. Knowing that the judgment that God had brought was fair. The people of God did not end up in exile because God overreacted or was unpredictable. When God made his covenant with Moses, if you want to have a look back in Leviticus 16, when you get home, you can see the blessings and the curses that would come. If the people lived in obedience, there were wonderful blessings that were promised. And if they disobeyed and walked away from God, there were significant Curses that God had promised. And Daniel knew all of that. In the prayer, in verses 5 and 10 and 11, he knows that the Jews had chosen to turn away. They hadn't just forgotten. They'd chosen to turn away from all of God's laws and commandments. That, verse 7, is their great act of unfaithfulness to God. And it isn't just that they'd forgotten, because in verses 6 and 10... The Jews had ignored the prophets that God had sent to remind them. God, in his great patience and forbearance, had sent messenger after messenger to say, this is the covenant. But they wouldn't, they couldn't keep it. And so after all of his warnings and patience, 
God remains faithful to his word. Verse 11, we read, Therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the word spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Verse 13, just as it is written in the law of Moses, no lack of certainty, no overreaction, all this disaster has come on us. And all of that, verse 7 and 8, has brought shame on God's people. The people who should have been a city of light on the hill have been snuffed out. The Babylonians have removed their witness the way they should have been drawing the nations to them to see the goodness and greatness and glory of God lived out through a people whose hearts were taken up in worship of him. And all of it's gone. But all of that's in the past. All of that happened 70 years ago. So what is it, as Daniel reads this prayer of Jeremiah, that drives him to prayer for the present? Because that's what's gripped Daniel as he prays. And the answer is in verse 13. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us yet. We have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. They have been in exile for 70 years, and the people haven't repented. Now, how long back in your family tree you need to go to think of who would have been alive 70 years ago? Who's died in the interim? Who's been born since then? All of that time has passed. And God's people haven't repented. You see how pivotal Jeremiah is to all of what's going on here. Yes, he's giving Daniel that clarity that the, the exile is about to end. But he's also showing him, well, all sorts of things. He's showing him how God's sovereignty and our human responsibility come together. See that? There's the promise of God that after 70 years, he will bring his people out of exile. But when Daniel realizes that, what's he driven to? He's driven to prayer. Not, he doesn't just kick back and think, well, God's going to rescue us. That's great. He realizes that there is supposed to be a heart of repentance in the people, and it's not there. So knowing that God's going to bring about this rescue, he pleads with God to save them. But how is Jeremiah and all of that clarity going to help Daniel to pray? He knows that the exile is coming, but that the people are to be repentant and to turn. He's looking at his people and realizing, well, they're not doing that. So how can Daniel pray for them? What is the ground? What is the basis? What is the reason? What is the hope that Daniel has as he drops to his knees in sackcloth and ashes and thinks, I can still pray? It is the character and the renown of God's name. That's what Daniel pleads all the way through this prayer. Verse 4 he prays to the great and awesome God who, unlike us, keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He, verse 7, is 
righteous. It's in his righteousness and justice, verse 14, that the Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on the Jews, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. But in his indivisible perfection, meaning in the nature of God, he is completely everything that he is all at the same time. You can't point to God and say, he's only a God of this or he's only a God of that. He is perfectly the God of all of his attributes, unchangeably all the time. He is righteous, but also, verse 9, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled against him, the very existence of the nation of the Israelites proves it. What is the story of the Israelites? That God in his power rescued a people because they were his people. What do you see? Verses 15 and 16. It's one of his most well-known acts of righteousness that the Lord brought his people out of Egypt with a mighty hat. And that is what gives Daniel hope to pray. Verse 15 onwards, it shifts from confession to petition. And his pleading with God is to be merciful to the Jews, not because they deserved it. Not only did they not deserve it, they weren't even sorry that they didn't deserve it. That's how bad this is. (laughs) What's Daniel's hope? It is the character of God and this longing that God would act in such a way that he would bring glory to himself. Look at all of the yours, all of the second person pronouns in verses 15 to 19. Who are the Israelites in verse 15? They are not a people who deserve God's grace. They are your people, God's people, whom he brought out of Egypt. When God rescued them through the plagues, Daniel says, you made for yourself a name that endures to this day. When he pleads with God in verse 16 to turn away his anger from the people and from the city, he says it's because the city is your city, your holy hill, and the people are your people. So what's the basis for Daniel's prayer to God? Verses 17 to 19, for your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears Your name, verse 19, for your sake, my God. Do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Do you see how Daniel is teaching us how to pray? Yes, we're to pray because God is merciful. And he is forgiving. But we are also to pray for God's name and reputation. We are to pray in such a way that he gets all the glory. If you've ever read a Bible commentary by Dale Ralph Davis, you will know that once Dale Ralph Davis said it, it's very hard for you not to say the same thing. This is what Dale Ralph Davis says. Daniel batters heaven with appeals to God's honor. That's what this prayer is. Is a man desperate for God to act in a way that brings him honor. Now, of course, he wants the Jews to be freed. He's been in exile for nearly 70 years. Of course, he wants the temple to be rebuilt because the people haven't been able to offer the sacrifices. Of course, he wants them to rebuild the city so that it's the great place for God's people to live in and for the nations to come and see. He wants all of those things, but each and every one of those is not an ultimate end in itself. 
It is to serve the purpose of bringing glory to God. Now, how God will do that and how he will point to something beyond that, we will come to next week. But for now, as we close, how should Daniel's prayer transform our prayers? In the providence of God, we have spent quite a bit of time over the last few weeks thinking about prayer. So David Skull helped us remember that every local church is to be a house of prayer. David McGowan helped us to think about how we should be devoted to prayer, especially when it comes to sharing the gospel with others and asking God to bless that so that they too would come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here Daniel adds four more pieces to our attitude to prayer. Firstly, we are to pray with the same urgency Daniel had. Now, why was Daniel praying urgently? Because Daniel was living in a moment in history when he knew the clock was ticking and it was almost the end of the 70 years. The people weren't repentant. They hadn't returned to God. So he's praying with that urgent timeline in frame. And you're thinking, well, what's so urgent for us? We do not know the day or hour when the Lord Jesus will return. And every man, woman, boy and girl stands on the brink of eternity. Unless and until by God's grace they come to trust in Jesus, everyone who does not believe in him, having turned away from his commands and laws, faces the just judgment of God. How could you have a more urgent time frame than that? We have to pray with the same sense of urgency, with a greater sense of urgency than Daniel had because we know that the Lord Jesus will return and bring an end to all of time. Secondly, we are to pray in a way that focuses on God's glory. It is right, it is good, and it is God-commanded that we pray for the salvation of men and women and boys and girls, for their peace and for protection, for the end of wickedness, for all the things that we pray for during the week in our pastoral prayers, all of those things we should pray for. But we are to pray that God would answer those prayers in such a way that brings glory to him. I think, if I reflect on my own prayer life, I can pray passionately for the lost and the needy. But all too often my prayers stop halfway. How often do I not pray that in the salvation of those who are lost, God would be glorified? How often do I not pray that in the healing of the suffering and the needy, they would be drawn to praise a God who is the one who has answered their prayers. Too often my prayers come halfway. And Daniel teaches us that our prayers are to bring glory to God. Thirdly, we should pray with even greater confidence. Here's Daniel. In the midst of everything that he's living through, he's clinging on to the prophecy of Jeremiah that says we will seek him and find him when we seek him with all of our heart. But we've seen the mercy of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Here was Daniel holding on to a prophecy of what God had said to Jeremiah, thinking, I know God has said that he's going to be merciful because he's promised it. And you might be thinking, well, you don't know my life. You don't know all the stuff I've done. You can't possibly say that God would be merciful to me, that if I pray to God, he promises to forgive all the stuff in my life. Jesus says, look to me. You see, a God who loves men and women and boys and girls so much, he would send his only begotten son into the world. What have we looked at as we've gone through John's gospel? You want to hear how specific and personal is the assurance of mercy from the God of heaven, the son of God, who left everything to come, says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. If you have not yet turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, that invitation is to you and to all people. To come to him knowing that he says, the one who has left the glory of heaven to come into the world, come to me and I will give you forgiveness and life and a welcome into the family of God. Fourthly, this prayer tells us that we are to praise God for a greater mediator. Daniel is a remarkable man. Daniel is a truly remarkable man. You think of everything that he's gone through in his life. We'll think a bit more about that next week. Here he is pleading with God for a nation who refused to be faithful, who refused to see the wickedness of their sin, who were simply getting on with life as though nothing mattered. And here's Daniel standing in the breach, pleading with God to forgive them. He's identifying with them. Despite all of his faithfulness, he's, he's genuinely identifying with all of these needy and broken people who refuse to see their need to return. How much greater is Jesus? Who was not born as one of us with no beginning before, but has for all eternity past been the perfect son of God who willingly set that aside to come into the world, not just to identify with us, not just to experience what we're going through, not just to know what our weaknesses and sufferings really feel like. He came, he himself to, he came in order to bear our sins in his body on the cross so that in him we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Jesus is the better mediator of a better covenant. And he is the one who says, come. Don't keep running away from me into judgment. Come and find rest, find stillness in the promise of God that comes to all who trust in Jesus. It's through him that we can pray with Daniel, verse 19. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. Let's take a moment to be quiet. Respond to God in your heart.
there are things that you know you need to confess, to plead with God for those who stand on the brink. And if you do not yet know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess your sin to him for yourself. Great God of heaven, we praise you because you are a God who acts in righteous mercy and compassion. We thank you that you are the God who speaks and every word you speak comes to fruition. Everything you have ever said through your people has or will be perfectly fulfilled. And in that is our great confidence. We thank you that that was Daniel's confidence and for the way that it prompted him to pray with all of the passion and longing of a man who desperately sought your glory and to plead for your people. We ask that you would make us men and women like Daniel. That our eyes would be so full, so certain of your words that we would pray with heartfelt longing but that we would do so seeking your glory. Seeking that men and women would come and rejoice to know that their sins have been forgiven, but that they are now free and able to praise you. Father, we know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our great prayer, depending upon your promises, is that before that day you would save many, many more. So that that act of humility is born out of joyful service and love and thanks from blood-bought children who love you with all their heart. Be gracious and merciful not only to us, but to the needy in our towns, our families, and in every place that we will have contact during the course of this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.